A Thoughtful Faith podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation. We are your hosts. I'm Mark Rigo. And I'm Gina Colvin. Our purpose at A Thoughtful Faith is to provide support for Mormons who want to stay engaged with their religion, yet are struggling to find conversations that support their faith transitions. While we seek to honor the beauty of the LDS faith, we also understand that discipleship doesn't necessarily mean uniformity and agreement. Hence, we make room here for all of those who are constructing or reconstructing a thoughtful faith journey. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go toward keeping the podcasts alive and building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Welcome to a Thoughtful Faith podcast. I'm your host, Gina Colvin. Today my guest is Karis Bray. Karis is a British novelist who lives with her family in Southport, a seaside town in Lancashire, in northwest England. A song for Issy Bradley is Karis's debut novel and was recently published by Hutchinson Books. It's been released in the UK and is soon to be released in paperback in the US. A song for Issy Bradley has had a full suite of reviews from the UK dailies, all of which have been overwhelmingly positive. This is remarkable not simply because Karis is a first-time novelist, but that her book is a novel about Mormons. To be precise, she writes about a British Mormon family, a bishop's family no less. A song for Issy Bradley explores five-year-old Issy Bradley's death through the eyes of each family member. Ian Bradley, the father, husband and orthodox bishop. Claire, his convert wife and through the eyes of Issy's teenage siblings, Zipporah and Alma, and her brother, seven-year-old Jacob. However, rather than resorting to the predictable caricatures of Mormon life or romanticising death from the doctrinal position of a faith tradition, Karis's treatment of each of her characters is nuanced, compassionate and profoundly kind. Nick Hornby, author of bestsellers such as About a Boy and High Fidelity, endorses the book, proclaiming it as a terrific book. I loved a song for Izzy Bradley. It's wry, smart, human, and rather miraculously avoids mawkishness. And ultimately, it's moving and comforting in a way that makes sense even to the agnostic. The Mail on Sunday writes, Bray explores the healing power of religion with rare assurance in one of the year's most impressive debuts. Now, only one who's been steeped in the Mormon faith is capable of such authenticity. Karis Bray grew up Mormon to the bone. A thoughtful faith is a supportive conversation to help those struggling in their faith transition, so it might come as a surprise that Karis is disaffiliated from the church. Yet a song for Issy Bradley is surprisingly warm in its treatment of Mormonism. While there's candor, one doesn't find oneself blindsided by someone who is using fiction to take pot shots at the church. It stands in this place between belief and refreshing honesty and makes sense of these polarities through the perspective of faith. It's this luminous and mindful quality that makes this discussion of the book A Song for Izzy Bradley a wonderful fit for a thoughtful faith. And with that said, Karis Bray joins me now. Welcome, Karis. And perhaps we could begin by your telling us a bit about yourself. Okay, so I was born in in 1975, and I was born in the town where I currently live, and my parents were both members of the church. My dad joined in his late teens and went to BYU after he converted, and he came home unmarried, and 
he later uh, met my mum. They were both teaching at a school in Liverpool, and uh, my mum converted. They got married. I was born in Covenant. I was the oldest of five children, and yeah, I just had a very sort of ordinary, ordinary Mormon childhood. I would say, you know, lots of church and lots of siblings and and lots of fun. Actually, it was, you know, it it was a nice childhood. Oh, you grew up in Liverpool, is that right? Um, so I grew up, it's, it's Liverpool, it's Liverpool Stake, yeah, so we lived in Liverpool till I was 10 and then my dad got a job in the south of England and we moved, we moved away and we moved to Plymouth Stake, which is an enormous uh, stake, it covers all of Devon and Cornwall, so when we moved down there, my dad was stake president and sometimes he would travel 200 miles to do a sacrament talk. It's a really big stake. So I spent my teenage years down there and, and moved back up, up north when I was in my 20s. You married in the faith? Yep, mm-hmm. yep, I did. So I got married when I was 20, and I was just 20 by about 10 days. <laughs> and I got married, and I had, before I got married, I was, I had a scholarship to BYU, but I came home for a little holiday and ended up staying in England. I, I didn't I didn't finish my degree. I got engaged and, and I got married. So and then I, I had children quite quite quickly. Um, so I had uh, five children in the first seven years of of being married. So it was quite a busy time. <laughs> and your husband is English. Yes. You went to BYU. You were happy not to go back. Yeah. I, I found BYU because my dad, because my dad had gone to BYU, had sort of grown up with all these stories about how amazing you know it was at BYU, and I had this idea in my head that BYU was—I don't know if you've ever seen the, the old American sitcom Happy Days with the Fonz. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Yes, yes. So I thought, <laughs> I thought that BYU was like was like Happy Days. Um, I just had all these somewhat erroneous ideas about what it was going to be like, and and it wasn't like Happy Days. No, not really. I just, I thought I would fit in a lot better than I did, I think. And not that it was a horrible experience or anything, because it wasn't. But I just, I was very aware for the first time that there were differences culturally between me and members of the church who grown up in America and in Utah, perhaps in particular. And so I, I didn't enjoy it as much as I imagined I would. And so when, when I came home and my old boyfriend and I decided that we still really like each other, then it, it wasn't that big of a hardship to not go back. Talk about those cultural differences that you noticed. So I'm quite often quite reserved, I think, which is maybe a British thing. So so there's effusiveness, I think, I, I found a little bit overwhelming at times. And I lived in the dorms and they were sort of all, there was a lot of crafting type things, you know, pretty <laughs> things that people made out of paper and, and gave to each other. And, and yeah, there, there was a lot of like things that I, as a British person who doesn't really do feelings publicly, it was a little bit all. When I first went, I thought, oh, people will think I'm British and they'll think it's really cool and everybody wants to be my friend. But there were times when I actually felt like that worked against me maybe a little bit and maybe... People felt that I was British and maybe I didn't quite understand the church as much as they did. Or 
so yeah, I thought I'd make lots of friends and, and, I, and I actually found it harder than I'd imagined it would be, is probably what it comes down to. And that may be, that may be my fault too. <laughs> right, right. So, no, I had a similar experience when I went to BYU Hawaii because I mean, New, uh, New Zealanders have the same kind of cultural trajectories, you know, being a colony and everything. And so I, I felt permanently like a wallflower because I couldn't... <laughs> throw myself into that space with the same enthusiasm as everybody else was sort of whooping and cheering about everything. Yeah, you know what it's like, you know. It's, it's <laughs> like, what is this place? Okay, and so you go to BYU, you come home and you do the, do the Mormon thing, you get married and you produce lots of babies. Yes. And so tell me what that was like leading up to your faith transition. So I did what I believed was the right thing to do. And that's why I did it. And I had been brought up in a family that was very orthodox. And so when you got married, you had children and you, you know, you did all these things that you'd been being primed to do all the way through young women's. And, and so, yeah, so I had my first child and when I was 21 and then I had my second child when I was 23. So my second child was born with, with a life limiting condition she had a congenital metabolic disease and so we knew not long after she was born that she was going to die quite soon she'd die sooner than we'd expected but I didn't stop believing then at all but I think that did slightly change my relationship changed my faith a little bit I think I stopped believing in miracles i not not because I didn't get one, because <laughs> that sounds sort of quite childish, doesn't it? It's like, oh, I didn't get a miracle, so therefore they don't exist. But I think I was sitting there in the neonatal intensive care unit. I, I was looking, looked around at the other babies in there, and the idea that that one set of parents among all of us might have some access to some magic words or might be more deserving of something miraculous it just suddenly seemed really it seemed like it seemed a really appalling idea and i sort of i suppose i stopped believing in the kind of god who who intervenes sometimes and not at other times so, I, so maybe there was a bit of distance created there for me. I, I, I started believing in a God who maybe doesn't intervene very much at all. But I still believed, you know, for, for, for a while after that. But looking back, I think maybe things changed a little bit then. And then, you know, I had another baby the next year and then another two. And all during that time, I was the young women's president twice. My husband was on two different bishoprics. He was young men's president twice as well. So we didn't see very much of each other because you know what it's like, you know, when you, the church isn't like it is in Utah. There's not 250 people in your ward. You'll tend to be doing several callings at once. Um, you know, it was quite normal for us to be out at church things five or six nights a week. So yeah, it was a very busy time, quite a stressful time as well. <laughs> So at the time, Karis, at the time that you lost your, your child, how old were you? So I was 23 then. Wow, that's young. Uh, it was quite young and I was, I was on the Relief Society presidency at the time and, and I, was, I was very, had this really sort of, this idea that I, I needed to just keep going and that that would almost be a, a demonstration of my faith, just that I, I couldn't sort of show that it was an upsetting thing to have happened. 
And so my Relief Society president and her counsellor were both away on holiday the week after my daughter died. <laughs> and I really sort of felt that I was doing this amazing thing by just going in and conducting Relief Society as if nothing had happened. And looking back, I can just see that it was com- completely bonkers, you know, <laughs> to, go, to go and do that and just be all like, oh, yes, I'm just going to carry on. But, yeah, that was how I coped with it. And it's funny because obviously a child dies in my novel and then people who know that one of my children died automatically assume that I must be the mother in the novel. But I was very much like Ian Bradley, the dad, in as much as that I just felt like, you know, we'll just all carry on and ignore it and everything will be fine. And so, yeah, so that's what I did. (laughs) Well, that's interesting that you say that. Um, And we want to get onto the novel in a minute. So following the death of your child, you obviously felt that uh, an expression of your faith was to just carry on, which is a theme that is picked up really beautifully in the book. But before we get there, you undergo a significant faith transition. Let's Can we talk about that and the time frames? So, so I just carried on and had more children and... And I think I was probably pregnant with my youngest child when I just had this, I can't really, I can't point to one one thing or another, I suppose. I, I, I just had the realisation that I, I didn't really believe in God anymore, which was quite a sort of, it was just a sort of gradual feeling of just not believing. And looking back, it was, it was a strange, um, it was a strange thing because I think I stopped believing in God before I stopped believing in Mormonism, which doesn't make any sense at all, but did at the time somehow. And, and I, I, you know, told told my husband that I didn't think I believed anymore, and and he was, you know, devastated. But I think he thought it would be okay because I would, you know, change my mind at some point and and it would all be fine. And I was actually I was actually the young women's president at the time again. So I just sort of carried on, really, and taught the lessons from the manual with a few slight adaptations that didn't went to do with me not believing in God, but were just to do with the general um, <laughs> tenor of the young women's lessons, which is some of them were, were more difficult to teach than others. Oh, really? Um, oh, I just, well, you know, I could do this sort of be a decent person and treat people kindly and, but it, you know, the old manuals before they did the, the changes recently they just would resist even referring to I think there was a lesson on working or but the word career I think they, it was called finding a vocation they were very clear that, that the word career wasn't meant to be used and I think it was I think they mentioned teaching and nursing and but it was all very these are things you can do until you do what you're meant to be doing and I, I did find those kinds of lessons uh, difficult to teach, I think. But no, I just just kept kept on being the Owens president. Had my my youngest child, and then didn't probably help matters that I I was quite depressed after I'd had her and was struggling to sort of cope with her and my other children, the oldest of whom was seven at the time, and um, and was young women's president. And my husband at the time was on the bishopric again. And I just felt, yeah, just felt really overwhelmed and went to see my doctor who who asked me, you know, what a typical week looked like. And I'm, I'm describing 
this um, typical week that includes youth nights and bishopric meetings and I've got you know four small children who need to be in various places at various times as well and and my doctor just sort of said to me you know you need to start doing this youth group thing as if as if it was a choice and of course I'd been brought up in a family where if you've given a calling then you do it that's the end of it there's no you know you never say no to a calling and the idea I, I just remember thinking oh you don't know you don't understand you know, when the doctor said that, I was like, yeah, you just don't get it. But I did, I did, I went and said to the bishop, I don't think, I can't do this anymore, you need to release me. And he said, no. <laughs> and so I carried on doing it. And, uh, yeah, eventually he did release me. And I think during that time, when all those things were happening, and, I, and I'd already started to think that maybe I didn't believe in God anymore, yeah, I just, I came out of that whole experience just really not believing in, in, in very much at all, but thinking that maybe I could still carry on going to church and it, it would be okay because, you know, it was quite nice being a Mormon. All my family were, you know, members of the church. My husband's family were all members of the church. I could see I could see the good things. And, yeah, so I, I did try for a while. And then I, and I, was listen, I started listening to, to Mormon stories, which actually was quite helpful at the time because... It opened things up a bit for me, and I was thinking, you know, there's so many different kinds of Mormon in the world. It's okay, I don't have to be orthodox, ultra-obedient Mormon that that I always thought I had to be. I can maybe be a different kind of Mormon. And so that was quite helpful for a couple of years. That sort of kept me in there, kept me sane as I was working through it all. And Karis, throughout, yeah. this, throughout this time, are you having a conversation with your husband about your faith transitions uh, well I told him I didn't think I believed in God anymore and then we we didn't really talk about it very much because it made him feel very uncomfortable and we're both we're both really non-confrontational so so we just sort of yeah it was a bit it was the elephant in the room thing really occasionally I would have a go at saying something or other and and he just found it really really hard so obviously it's a scary thing if you think that your eternal marriage might be in jeopardy and if your wife suddenly starts changing her mind about you know believing in god is she going to change her mind about being married to you and so yeah i i, I understood why it was like a a scary thing and why he didn't want to talk about it but it was it was quite a lonely time for me because if I did try and talk about it there were times when he would just get up and leave the room <laughs> I'd be left sort of talking to nobody thinking oh no so yeah it was listening to Mormon stories was quite helpful because it just made me think okay this there's other people like me it's not just I'm not just you know a complete weirdo there are people who have different degrees of, of participation. And so, yes, yeah, so it was it was difficult for a few years. And he obviously he was praying the whole time that I would change. And, and yeah, and I didn't really um, change. I just, you know, stayed as I was. So, mm. And now? So in, let's think. In so after about it was about four years of that. One day, my husband just out of the blue sort of said to me, "I don't don't think I've been being very fair. I, I really ought to listen to uh, to how you feel about all these things." <laughs> and I thought, "Yes, you really ought to." 
And we had this conversation that just lasted for hours and hours and hours. I think we went to bed about half past three in the morning. And as a result of that conversation, he decided that he was going to sort of re-examine his own faith. And you know, when you're, when you're growing up and there are things about about the church that sort of bother or concern you, people tell you to, to put it on the shelf. And he just decided he was going to take everything off his metaphorical shelf and, and have a look at it. And I was, you know, I was just really pleased with that because I thought, well, we can we can be open now and I, I absolutely wasn't expecting him to find anything on this metaphorical shelf that couldn't that he couldn't rationalize or deal with but within a matter of weeks he 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 didn't believe anymore either and it was it was very strange because in in a way it was exciting that I wasn't alone but in a way it was terrifying too because if he didn't believe either then we might actually have to do something, you know, make a decision. And all through those four years, there'd been no decision because I wasn't going to stop going to church. I wasn't going to leave him in a situation where we were a part member family and, and where things would be really awkward for him socially. Um, but when, yeah, when he stopped believing too, then it was like, okay, what what do we do now? And yeah, we, we took us a year <laughs> to decide what to do. Looking back seems silly that it took us so long, but I think we wanted to have a really big think about it. And when you announced this to your parents, what was their reaction? So, yeah, it was a, it was the difficult. Obviously, it was a really difficult thing to do. And I had been for for, for that year, I had been compiling a, a letter to my parents because I I always worry about about my words. I like to think about them. I like to get them on paper and then rearrange them a bit and make sure that they it sounds exactly how I wanted it to sound. So I'd been writing this letter to my parents and I'd been working on it for about a year and it was 10 single-spaced sides of 10-point font. It was a massive, great big document. And and I, I'd wanted to talk to them on the phone, say, look, explain, and then say, I, I want to send you this letter. And then they could read it and it would all be okay. But unfortunately, and, and I'm not going to say who or anything, but somebody in, in the extended family found out and, and told my parents before I had a chance to tell them, which made things really difficult because I think it would have been, it was a hard thing for them to hear anyway. It would have been a hard thing for them to hear from me, but I think it was even harder being told by somebody else. So yeah, it was difficult for them, but it it turned out fine. We have a good relationship still, fortunately. And yeah, and uh, most of my my fears about about doing that were, were unfounded. And you know, I've kept a lot of my a lot of my Mormon friends. I don't see them very often, but you know, we're still friends on Facebook. We still send messages to each other. We we still comment on each other's pictures. And so yeah, it's it's not been too bad. So this is. It leaves you in a position with you and your husband having to re-think about and reformulate your lives. How has that been? It's been, it was quite exciting and I thought it sort of, it made me think that in a way we're quite like our parents because his parents as well were both converts who joined the church in the 60s, I think, and it felt like they were doing something really exciting and and significant and, and basically we've done the same thing in a way 
just in reverse. So it was it was exciting. There was trepidation about leaving, but there was also a feeling of, okay, what what do we want to do? What are we going to fill our time with? Because church had taken up such a huge chunk of our of our time, and suddenly we had all this all this time to fill. And so my husband, he he really likes sport, but hadn't been doing anything for years and so he started coaching two junior league football teams and and I started writing and then we, we started doing um hiking with the children at the weekends and so yeah it was it was fun filling filling all that extra time and finding things you know new things to do and how have the children been throughout all this this transition so we when we were in that that year where we were deciding what to do, we, we stopped going to church every week and we just went every other week to sort of try and, you know, just, just maybe let them see and do some different things. We, we'd heard stories, you know, from, from people who, who had left of their children being, you know, really upset by it. And we were, we didn't want to upset the children and we also didn't want to do, we didn't want to go from, saying you have to go to church every week to you can't go to church because that's just sort of the other side of of the same thing so when we explained to the children that we weren't going to go anymore we told them that um if they wanted to carry on going they could carry on going with some friends of ours and they could sit with them during sacrament meeting and because we wanted them to feel that that they had some say in uh, in what happened to them and, and three of them straight away said, no, thanks. Um, so that was, that was, you know, that was their choice. And then one of them, the one who really struggled to sit still through church and who it was a battle to, uh, you know, to get to church on a Sunday. And I used to just spend most of the time chasing him up and down the corridors. He turned around and said, I want to carry on going. And my husband and I were really shocked but obviously, you know, that, that's what we had, had promised. So I said to him, well, we'll think about this and we'll we'll ask these people if you can sit with them. And and then his little face was just like, oh, no, 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 no. No, that's not what I meant. I meant I want you to take me at the end when all the meetings are finished so I can swap Pokemon cards with my friends. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 no. That's not what, we, that's not what we're offering to do. So... So yeah, they were, you know, our oldest son was 11, so none of them were, were in youth yet, and it, it was it was an easy transition for them to make, and we still say to them now, you know, when you're older, if you want to go to church, you know, like grandma and grandpa do, that's absolutely fine by us, but so far none of them have shown any interest in that, and, and that's fine too, I, I sort of feel like those decisions are, are theirs to make at some point. So what led you to resign the church as opposed to just lapse? It was, actually, it was my husband who wanted to resign. I was, I was sort of quite happy to sort of carry on just not going, but he was, he was quite, he was quite keen to resign and he suggested it and I sort of, yeah, I couldn't really think of a reason to stay, really. There were some things as well that I found quite difficult there was the in in 2008 when we were having that year where we were thinking about what to do there was the whole proposition eight thing and I think that sort of gave us a bit of a push 
yeah, we found that difficult. And I think we just, yeah, we just felt that we, we, we don't think we're going to come back. So maybe we should just, you know, make, make it, make it final. Mm. Um, yeah. I suppose um, because this is a thoughtful faith podcast, under normal circumstances, this would not be the story because we're talking about a thoughtful faith, like, as, as gripping as it is. But why I asked you to come on this was this podcast was because your novel is such a wonderful example of a thoughtful faith. So we're going to talk now about your novel. And once again, the title is a song for Izzy Bradley. And I'm wondering if you could just begin by talking about what led you to write this book on a Mormon theme. Okay. Um, so, I, when, we, when we first left the church, I started writing and I wrote a short story collection and... The vast majority of the stories in that are having, you know, are not religious at all. And I was sort of aware that I was, I was avoiding, you know, writing about religious things, and and I sort of didn't didn't really feel ready to to do it. Actually, it all felt a bit raw and a little bit close to home. But when I'd finished the short story collection in in 2011, I started to think about a novel, and I'm re I am really interested in miracles and in miracle stories, and I suppose and in the reason the reasons why people tell them as much as anything, and also in in doubt and faith and and these kinds of themes. And I just I, I wrote a short story which was, was published in, in dialogue, actually, about a little boy whose sister dies and who thinks that maybe he can perform you know, a miracle because he's, he's heard all these miracle stories and he doesn't see why he shouldn't also be able to, to do something miraculous. And I was aware when I was writing the story that it might be able to sort of turn, turn into something quite a bit bigger. And when I finished it, I was I was happy with it and I thought oh I'm gonna have a go I'm gonna have a go at, at making this into something bigger but I was aware that it would be a little bit tricky because I really wanted to sort of it, it, the book was never ever intended to be a critique of Mormonism or a way of mocking the characters or anything like that I wanted it to be a sympathetic depiction of a Mormon family going through something really difficult. So it's not a book about leaving the church. Nobody leaves the church. You know, I didn't want it to be my story. I wanted it to be, you know, fiction. And I was thinking about Salman Rushdie has this essay called In God We Trust, where he says that even, a, even the most secular of writers ought to be able to create a sympathetic portrait of a devout believer. And... So that was my sort of, that was the challenge I'd sort of set myself was how, how can I do that even though I'm, you know, somebody who's left. Um, so that's, that's sort of what I was thinking as I, as I started to write it. And as you were writing it, you found yourself back in a Mormon space and drawing on all of those narratives and stories that have formed so much a part of who you are. What was that like, being in that space again? It was quite fun, actually. For the most part, it was 
Yeah, I I enjoyed it because the novel sort of kaleidoscopes between these different perspectives, and each character has a very different relationship with them with Mormonism. So you know, there's there's various levels of commitment and belief, and so it was it was fun to sort of get inside all of their heads and and try to explore those different levels of orthodoxy and different levels of, of belief, and and yeah, and I was still thinking about you know, about Mormonism quite a bit. I was still reading the Mormon blogs on the Bloggernacle. I was still listening to episodes of Mormon stories. And so I was still still in, in, a, in a quite a Mormon space in a way, even though I wasn't attending church anymore. So, yeah, I don't know if that answered the, the question or not really. So, I mean, I suppose that brings us to this question of making a faith transition after basically being socialised to be a Mormon. So you don't park that, do you? You don't park your Mormon identity. It doesn't just go away. It is who you are, isn't it? it yeah, it is. Well, you've been, you know, when you've been hardwired a particular way, it's very difficult. And it, I think, it, yeah, it is It is difficult. I, I've come to a place where I sort of I just accept that there will be bits of me, I think, that will always be Mormon. You know, I will always love the, the hymns, I will always, it, it won't feel like Christmas to me until I've put the Tabernacle Choir CD on. And there are, there are just, there are lots of cultural things that I, I respond to on, you know, on some sort of level that I think I always will. And there are good bits, you know, I'm not, I'm not somebody who, who's left the church and feels that everything to do with Mormonism is awful. And, you know, there, there are lots of things that I, I loved about being a Mormon. And, and there's no reason why I can't still love those things. I was, I was talking to a friend who used to be a Jehovah's Witness and she was talking about how she deals with, with that. And she said that to me that, you know, she felt that she could laugh at her former self and sort of make fun of her former self or she could be kind to her former self and think, I genuinely believe those things. Those things were important to me and I'm not going to laugh at my former self and I'm not going to you know be horrible about her and I, I liked that and, and that's you know that's what I sort of try to do yeah I, I believe very different things now but I'm not going to drive a steam train through my past and try and destroy it all I've, I, I am made in Mormonism and you know that's okay. So when you began writing this I read in the the acknowledgements that something about your supervisors so did this come out of some university study that you're doing or it did so when I was writing short stories I was doing a master's and I went back and to do my PhD and, and this is my this is my PhD novel so I, I was being supervised and that was probably quite helpful as well because I had two people who were reading excerpts as, as I wrote it and were giving me feedback all the way through and they knew what I was trying to do and so they were sort of able to point me in the right direction if they felt that I was going off course a bit so yeah that was that was really useful. So you wrote a, a novel for a PhD? If you do a creative writing PhD then you do a novel and then you do a piece of research or poetics they call it so just a piece of writing it might be about process or it might be about uh, maybe other similar novels a sort of critical piece so yeah 
you've got the novel and then you've got your other bit and they sort of come together to uh, to make the, the PhD mission. What university are you at? So I'm at a, a small university which is about 15 minute drive from my house. It's called Edge Hill University. Very good. So you're near the completion, are you? You just need to do this final piece and then you're near it. I am. I've got my final piece written. I've just got a few corrections and then hopefully my Bible will be in the early in the autumn and then I'm done. Hooray! Yay! Well, I know what that's like. It's really <laughs> wonderful. Such a relief. So let's talk about the book. And I introduced it by saying it had some really good reviews. So could we... Because it's not easy for somebody to get a Mormon novel published without it being, I'm thinking about The Nineteenth Wife, without it being edgy and critical or inflated. But this wasn't. It was a very temperate but very thoughtful book. So in terms of finding a publisher, what was that like for you? So when I was writing it, I, I, in my head I, I sort of thought, well, if I'm really lucky, I'll be able to get it published with a small independent press, like like my short story collection. And so the whole time I was writing it, I never imagined that very many people would, you know, would, would read it. But I, I got an agent who, who's, who's a good agent, who has some, some good writers on her books. And when I finally submitted the novel to her, she told me where she was sending it. And I was really surprised. And... And, and a little bit disbelieving, actually. And I, I just thought, well, yeah, you can try that, but I don't think it'll work. So I actually started making her a little list of smaller publishers <laughs> and, and sort of emailed it, it over to her, and she just ignored me sent them off. And, yeah, so she she sent them off on the winds, the manuscript off to, to some publishers on, on the Wednesday and told me that we could be waiting for up to three months. But on the Friday, she called me back and said... Are you sitting down? Um, and for a moment, it didn't occur to me that she was going to say anything nice. I actually felt quite frightened. And I sat down and said, yes, I, yeah, I'm sitting down. Why? What's wrong? And um, she just said, oh, we've got a preemptive bid for your novel. And, uh, yeah, and it was for a six-figure sum. And, yeah, it was a good job I was sitting down. <laughs> How fabulous. And Hutchinson published it, didn't it? Yes, they did. So, yeah, so, yeah, my, my knees went all knobbly, all wobbly, and um, <laughs> the, the publisher who, who had originally made the offer didn't, didn't end up publishing the book because it, it then went to an auction because some others were interested as well. So it was a complete shock. I was absolutely flabbergasted because it, it's just a little novel about Mormons and they don't they don't practice polygamy they don't do anything illegal they don't they're not horrible people there's no massive drama and um, I was yeah I was very surprised that several big publishers were were after it and then of course I had to send it to my mum because I hadn't really talked to my parents very much I mean they knew obviously they knew I was writing a novel but and they, I think they knew it was about Mormons, although we hadn't really talked about it. But I was, oh my goodness, I need to send this to my parents so that they can read it. So I did. And what, what was that review like? So my mum doesn't really like it very much. My dad thinks there's too much swearing in it. Really? <laughs> yeah. I must but, be jaded, Karis, because I think maybe I recall once, I think it's Alma, your character swears occasionally. Yeah. Alma swears. And nobody else swears. No. Everybody else is a really good Mormon. So yeah, that was 
But I think my dad, my dad's, my dad is, he used to write plays and his degree is in drama and, and he's quite an arty sort of person. And I think he, you know, I think he sort of appreciates it on a certain level. Um, but they were very anxious, I think, about about people making fun of the church, I think. That they, they were worried that, that people might read it and then say, oh, Mormons are all ridiculous. And so, yeah, I think that was their, that was their main concern. And it didn't happen, did it? Like in the reviews, no. nobody said, come and read this this bizarre novel about some weird Mormons. Yeah, yeah, nobody, nobody has said that. In fact, just the opposite, really. It's, I was, so there was a review in the, in the Daily Mail that said, Bray explores the healing power of religion with rare assurance. So, yeah, I, I'm pleased. It, it seems that I, at least from the British reviews anyway, it seems that what I was trying to do is what I managed to you know I mean I hope it was it's difficult for me to say that because obviously I wrote it and I'm not sure but other people seem to to think that it's a sympathetic portrait which is good I'm, I'm pleased about that and it hasn't been released in the United States yet as a, as a hardback or a, a paperback what do you think no. the reviews will be like in America I don't know I'm not sure there is a, they've given a few they've done given a few review copies out and there is there is a review. I, I've stopped reading the reviews now. I read the first few, and then I sort of was like, okay, I'm not going to read anymore because it's quite it's quite stressful. Um, so, but there was an early review from an American reviewer who who felt that that you would not normally see that sort of level of devoutness in a Mormon family, and they actually said in the review that you wouldn't. They used that word. They said you would not normally encounter this. In a, commu- in a community of Mormons, and, and the reviewer was, was a Mormon reviewer. And and I felt quite prickly about that, actually, because I felt a bit like, well, for me, that is how it is to be a Mormon in England. There is a sort of culture of obedience, and people are quite orthodox, and we do sort of live in a, in a, in a post-correlation atmosphere, really, and I felt like a little bit like I was being, ex, you know, explained to by this person who didn't really understand what what they were um, criticizing. So I don't know whether there'll be. A, I suspect there might be quite a bit more of that, and I might find that difficult, which is one of the reasons why I'm not reading reviews anymore. Good idea. I mean, it's interesting that you say that, Karis, because when I was reading it, I thought this feels like Mormonism in New Zealand, where some of those those more. Kind of, nuanced possibilities don't exist at the periphery of the church where we're just reading a very very correlated way of being a Mormon and it's either this or that it's very yeah some of those 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 experiences and those meanings that you are creating really really resonated because you know we're one of the colonies so reading Mormonism from a distance and we just don't see the shades yeah I, I that's yeah that's 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 how I, I feel about it I think I think there is a real sort of culture of absolute obedience and mm. that and you know that that is how you show your devotion and your um, your love I suppose to God is 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 by being extremely obedient um and and that's how a lot of the characters in the novel uh, behave not all of them but you know mm. some of them it would be such a shame for it to be for for your novel not to be seen as a British experience of Mormonism 
as opposed to just this is Mormonism. You know, in the US, you know, readers and reviewers picking it up. As you say and saying, this isn't what Mormonism is like, when in actual fact it is very much like that at the periphery of the church, you know, very much. You know, I can attest, I bear witness. Yeah. Okay, so, well, let's talk a little bit about the book, and there's going to be no spoilers here, but let's just talk briefly about the plot. And then we want to talk a little bit about the characters, because I think perhaps one of the strongest features of the book is the characterization and the way that these, these characters have, have evolved. So let's start with just over to you for just a very brief plot summary. Okay. So Song Chrissy Bradley, it's the story of the Bradley family during a particularly sad autumn. Um, their daughter Izzy dies, and each family member grieves um, in their own way. So Ian, the dad, he's a Mormon bishop. He's also working as a maths teacher at a, at a school, and, and he thinks that if everyone just carries on, uh, like the brave pioneers, then everything will be fine. But his wife, Claire, she blames herself for Izzy's death, and she's just devastated by grief, and she needs everything to stop while she comes to terms with what's happened. And and she, she crawls into Izzy's bunk. I don't know, actually, if that's a word that sort of trans, translates. She crawls into Izzy's bed, and... And won't come out. What is um, the American word for bunk? I don't know. I have no <laughs> idea. Maybe it is bunk. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so Zippy, Cora, their teenage daughter, she's grieving, but she's also in love for the first time. So she's dealing with that. And then Alma, their teenage son, he's he's sceptical and he's cynical and he feels like he doesn't fit in with the rest of the family. But their youngest well, then their newly youngest son, Jacob, is seven, and, and he thinks that if he just has enough faith, then maybe he can fix everything with, with a miracle. So, yeah, that's, that's the sort of outline, I think. The book begins with this wonderful scene at Standards Night, and this is where I was gripped. I thought mm -hmm. this was the funniest thing that I had read in a long time. <laughs> can we talk a little bit about that, just as a bit of a teaser? Yeah, so... I was, I've been very lucky when it comes to sort of disgust-inducing metaphors for premarital sex. I, I don't believe that I have sat through a lesson where anybody has done any of those, you know, crushing flowers and things, but I've heard enough to know that, you know, it's something that has happened a lot. Hopefully it's not happening as much anymore. So we're talking and, about the uh, object lesson. Yeah, yes. that's right. Those those object lessons to do with chastity, virginity, and, and yes, yeah, and sort of dirtiness. And I just, yeah, I just thought that, you know, the, the obviously the chewed gum thing is is the one that people think of, and and I did want to use sort of object an object lesson because there is something about Mormons and object lessons, and I I don't know what it is, but you know, I went to the baptism of of one of my, I think it was a nephew, I don't even remember whose baptism it was, I just remember the object lesson, <laughs> and it was, they'd like, you know, got a dirty penny, and they poured something on it, it might have even, they might have even poured Coca-Cola on it, but it, not from a Coca-Cola, you know, <laughs> and, then it, and then it came up all, um, all shiny, and it, it was being used at a baptism, and I wanted to put my hand up and say, but we don't believe in original sin, so your thing is not right, stop it, um, <laughs> 
But anyway, yeah, back to Chesterton. So yeah, so I just wanted to, I, I just thought, you know, I have to have an object lesson in the novel because we do nothing. I think I even say we, and I'm not really a member anymore. But yes, you of, are. Yeah, I feel, feel like I still am in some ways. But yeah, we love them so much that I wanted to have one. And, and so I just had this one that just sort of goes wrong because Claire, Ian Bradley's wife, is a convert and she was not a virgin when she got married to Ian Bradley and and she is not disgusted by this object lesson and she actually gets up in the middle of it and and eats the chewed gum to make a point um, and I just yeah I just liked that because I thought what would you do if you sat there and you really objected that would be really the only way you could respond I suppose wouldn't it <laughs> I don't know and it was so beautifully written. It was just, you know, screamingly funny. And, and it kind of took me by surprise, too, as I was cringing with Sister Anderson and this, this chewed gum thing. And and then all of a sudden, this quietly spoken woman just leaps up and takes the gum. And you know, I thought it was beautiful. So, well, let's then talk about the characters. So we've got the parents, Claire and Ian. And then, as you say, we've got Alma and Zippy and Jacob. So let's start talking a bit about Claire. Yeah, so Claire is a convert. She really joined the church because she wanted to marry Ian, who is very, you know, he's very—he's an absolutist, I suppose, is what he is, um, which means that he is very loyal and he's very trustworthy and, you know, and she likes those things about him and, and she joins the church and she doesn't have quite the same faith as him. And when Izzy dies, that is really difficult for her because she is trying to have faith that she finds that actually she can't quite do it. And obviously that, that then causes difficulties in, in their marriage as well. So I sort of wanted to explore that, that faith under great pressure and what, what happens if, if you don't really feel it. Can you sort of make yourself feel it or not? And it was the, I suppose it was the, the difference in approach between Ian and Claire. His response was to carry on. Yeah, definitely. And I'm aware that Ian is quite an unsympathetic character for a lot of the novel. He is infuriating, I think. People find him difficult. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> but, and, and as I was writing him, I found, did find him difficult to write, but at the same time, I, I did feel sort of quite empathetic towards him as well, because I could see, I could see a lot of, a lot of my past self in him, you know, this idea of, you know, everything will be all right in the end, stop moaning, you know, the pioneers didn't moan, and this, this idea that you just have to keep going, you know, I, I can remember, which this is an incredibly unsympathetic story about myself. So the day, so my, my daughter died on a Saturday, and the next day, obviously, was a Sunday, and it was a church, and my husband did not want to go to church. Absolutely, understandably, didn't want to face anybody, didn't want to see anyone, and I made him, because it was Sunday, and on a Sunday, you go to church. So, yeah, there is that's sort of how I used to, to operate I think Harry's perhaps you're a bit harder on him than I would have been. I just felt that Ian was limited. I, right. He had one discourse that he was drawing on and nothing else mm -hmm. made sense to him. I just, 
I, you know, I read passages out, particularly when they were discussing the funeral, and he, you know, there was a debate about how it should be conducted, and he reaches for the general handbook of instructions. I read that out to my very orthodox husband, and I said, do you see? Do you, do you see? And he said, yeah, I do, actually. I do. He said, I don't think that I would respond to you in that way, because I can see strains of Ian and my husband, Nathan. And so I took great delight in reading these accounts. Uh, and and um, he said, I, don't, I will have to object that I'm entirely like that because you don't let me be that way. And the difference between you and I is that Claire let him be that way, which I thought was a bit mean of him, but, but I could see. Yeah, that's right, because Claire, obviously, Claire wasn't born in the church, so she has no experience of lots of these things. And also, yeah, I mean, well, my, my dad was was a bishop and a state president and, and a mission president and we always had the handbooks were always in the house and obviously it never occurred to me that as a female I wasn't supposed to read them because I, I was like I just read anything I was always reading so by the time I was about 14 I read every single handbook and I didn't realize that women don't normally get to read handbooks it hadn't even dawned on me you know because I just had access to them and would just have a little read of them when I felt like it um, but if you haven't had that, then you sort of don't know all the rules, do you? You're playing by a set of rules that you don't necessarily know. So so how would you know that you're not supposed to have a slideshow at a funeral or or whatever it is? You just wouldn't you wouldn't know. And Claire doesn't and yeah, and that's it's quite a difficult, awkward scene, I think, where she wants things that she's not gonna be allowed to have. Yeah, but that but but don't you think that it's more Ian has no other He's got no internal resources to deal with it outside of the church, so he's finding his he's finding his way through his own grief by relying heavily upon procedure and routine and everything that has made his life make sense up until now. Yeah, yeah. I suppose. Absolutely. So, so let's talk a little bit about Ian, because mm. uh, you know when we've been communicating by email, um, I. I demanded that you explain this awful person <laughs> who was compelling as much. You know, I mean, you kind of did it in a, you know, you did it through these different voices. So you had five different voices going at the same time, didn't you? Only until, until Izzy, you had six until Izzy dies. And I'd kind of get to the Ian chapters and I'd sort of like get white knuckled, but I'd be so compelled. So, so let's talk a little bit about where he came from. Ian is just, he's very much like the the men I grew up around. He's hes like, he's like my father-in-law, my father, my husband, my brothers-in-law. He's, he's just like the men that I grew up around, mm -hmm. you know, very well-intentioned, very, would, would do, would drop anything and go and help anybody. But perhaps at times not very sensitive to the needs of the people who are who are very close with his their own family members. And, and and I sort of don't blame I don't blame Ian for that because there is this idea that if you put the Lord and then brackets the church first, that everything else will be taken care of. And and that's and people do that. They they they, they put you know, they put the Lord first and then trust that he will take care of their family and, and the other things in their lives that need taken care of. And 
sometimes that's yeah sometimes it doesn't work out very well yeah sometimes it does but <laughs> sometimes maybe not it's interesting that you say that because like right in front of me now is a picture of my husband as a missionary looking yeah. very dapper with his yeah. bicycle helmet on and Aww. and I wonder if the constitution of that Mormon man really happens around the mission because what you get with Ian is him detaching himself from his family and finding some comfort in the service he gives others and I wonder if the mission isn't really part of catalyzing that that Mormon men have this capacity to abandon family and find their comfort in the service of others because that's what a mission is, isn't it? It's just separating yourself out from family and finding your spiritual self in other spaces. So, you know, I could kind of see him doing that. You know, he's always attending to the Andersons and always finding a way to do service for others as a way of, under, you know, a way of reconnecting with his spiritual self. I mean, I don't know, maybe. Yeah. No, that's a really interesting thing that you've just pointed out to me. And now, yeah, yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. And I, I think there's probably a lot of truth in that. Because, I mean, mm. how many of us yeah. Mormon women, you know, having devout husbands, watch, we think to ourselves, please don't go. Because yeah. right now, I absolutely need you to be here. Knowing that that's not the question a good Mormon wife asks. And knowing also that it would be cause him to like wonder what the heck you're talking about. You know, this is a foreign language that you're speaking. I go and I serve and I do my home teaching. And your our children may be, you know, running ragged and you may be at your wit's end, but I go and I serve. And that's what Mormon men do. And it's charming and it's beautiful, but it's so violent in some ways. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I you know, when my when my daughter was a baby and I had my my three sons were you know sort of two years old, four years old, and seven years old, and my so my husband would be at you know if he wasn't at a bishopric meeting he'd be out visiting people he'd be doing his home teaching or and it was just, it was there were times when I would go during the day when I would actually go shopping and just so I could speak to other adults you know I'd go and do the grocery shopping and then I'd like start talking to people <laughs> random, random strangers in, in the aisles of the supermarket just because hell, it was just so lonely and like I remember one time he actually was was home in time to eat a meal with the kids and it was such an unusual thing that that they gave him a round of applause when he came <laughs> in the door <laughs> yeah it's really is a lovely thing to be married to somebody who, who wants to help people and you know and I've been the recipient of that help as well we when we've moved house the whole of the priesthood have turned up and packed our removal van and so it is it is something that is just lovely about the Mormon community but yeah there are times when as a woman at least for me and, and maybe for you too wait where you want to say no I can't not now I, I need you here and you can't because it's not part of the script it's, it's not part yeah. of the script but you would see the confusion in their eyes because they're not yeah. built that way, woman men. I mean, you know that they're not carousing around with other women, usually. You know yeah. that they're not carousing, you know, they're not out getting pissed. They're not plonkers, and they're out doing really good things, but sometimes it hurts. It hurts, yeah. and I think that's what your novel has really, you know, highlighted really beautiful, how painful that can be. 
but but beautiful in the end. But anyway, anyway, so let's talk. Let's talk about Alma, one of my favourite characters. I just adored this boy. So let, where did he come from? So Alma, um, where did Alma come from? Alma reminds me a little bit of one of my own boys, although my, my own son, when I was writing the book, was maybe, I don't know, maybe six or seven. So he's a lot, lot younger. But it, I, I sort of imagined if we if we'd have kept going to church then at least one of my boys, I think, would have ended up like Alma, because Alma is like the, the the villain of the family, except he's not a villain at all. He's a lovely boy, but but he can't, he just doesn't fit, and, and he can't pretend. He can't pretend uh, spirituality that he just doesn't feel, and, and which makes it difficult for him. And so, yeah, I just, I wanted to sort of explore that, the fact that he isn't a bad person, and yet somehow he is still the villain of the family because he's not the same as everybody else. I suppose if you looked at him from the outside, and this is why I don't think he raises any concerns for anybody, because he's doing what he's required. It's just this internal world that is so conflicted, <laughs> which is just um, extraordinary. And But so, but it's so utterly um, believable. I mean, I think that's one thing about your character. It's so believable. And I'm reminded of a young, men, a young man in our ward who reminds me of Alma. And they were talking about education and teachers' quorum class. And somebody said, why do you think the church places an emphasis on education? And Jake replied, well, it's because if you get an education, you get higher salaries, and that means the church is going to get more money. So, <laughs> 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 so he, well, I bet that answer wasn't in the manual, was it? <laughs> no, it wasn't. I mean, we've, we've got a fairly progressive ward, so, you know, he was a bit of a hero for this, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, so... So there he is trying to find solace. He's finding solace in his football. and He's flawed, but he's also possibly one of the most authentic characters in the whole book. Now, he has a older sibling, Zipporah. So let's talk about her. So Zippy is just, she's, she's a good girl, and, and she's fallen in love with the state president's son. And she, she really sort of is thinking about how many years it might be before she can marry him. <laughs> she's put it all worked out. And, and yeah, she's just, I think she's very vulnerable because of what's happened with her sister, but also because she's properly in love for the first time and it's all very um, heartfelt and intense on her part, at least. <laughs> and then we have this wonderful scene involving... Uh, mother's wedding dresses <laughs> had you ever been to one of those activities where, where the young woman dress up in their mother's wedding dresses do you know i hadn't but i am I'm a member of the feminist mormon housewives facebook group and i sort of became aware of these activities as some of the mormon feminists were getting quite sort of upset about them you know the fact that they were happening and they didn't want their daughters doing these activities where they where they dressed up and then I also became aware that there were some actual there were some videos on YouTube of these activities that some some hapless young women's leader somewhere had thought it would be a really good idea to upload the video of of these 14 year olds parading around in wedding dresses and you can just imagine what the YouTube comments were like 
it it was a bit of a disaster and then they they took they took the videos down so yeah i wasn't even aware that it was a thing until quite recently but it is a thing that seems to be happening and and uh, so in my in my novel it's an american sister who sort of introduces this idea because in my head i was thinking well we would never do that it's an american thing yeah Yeah, Yeah. it's but having said that i was just about two weeks ago reconnected with somebody on facebook who's still an active member of the church and and uh, she friended me on facebook and i went and had a little look through her photographs you know as you do saw how big her children are now and and there was a photograph of her teenage daughter and all of her friends all dressed in wedding dresses in the chapel they live in england it obviously has made its way over here it's it is something that people are doing golly um they probably read your book and thought that's a really good idea for a young woman's activity (laughs) well i mean because i can't imagine it ever flying in new zealand you know, I mean, sometimes we read these things, cultural things, and go, oh, that's an American thing. This will never do. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'll go to young women's one day and they'll all be dressed in their mother's wedding dresses. Oh, that's frightening. And, and then you have this lovely scene with the finger, with her and Adam and the finger. I, mean, I might just leave it there. It's a lovely teaser, isn't it? Yeah, it's not as rude as it sounds. <laughs> no, it's not R-rated. <laughs> So I'm going to leave that there. But let's talk about Jacob because it's around Jacob that the story of miracles happens, isn't it? Confluence of all of these, the, the family's achings vested in this child who carries this burden. You know, the pain of the family uh, um, on his poor wee shoulders and he's expecting a miracle. So let's talk about, about him for a second. So, so Jacob's seven. So that's around the age when children start to realise, I think, that, you know, that death is... Is, is permanent, or at least, you know, it, it's permanent for now, if, if you believe in an afterlife, that you're going to have to grow old before you see the person again. And so he's not quite there yet with his thinking. And, and he, he listens to these stories that his mum reads to him every night from the, from the Bible and the Book of Mormon readers. And, and it really does think that if he just has enough faith then maybe he can fix everything. And so he starts practicing on, on very small things to see if maybe he can resurrect something. And and when he practices on Izzy's goldfish, something happens that makes him think that maybe he actually does have the capacity to to create a miracle. And in, in fact, on the American cover of the novel, there is there is a goldfish, a sort of... Um, oh. There's a goldfish that's sort of got light coming out from behind it, as if it's like, ta-da! <laughs> and I suppose it's almost comic, but kind of tragic mm-hmm. at the same time, isn't it? The whole incident with the goldfish. Yeah. Now, is there a particular scene that you really loved writing or it had a memorable effect on you as you were writing it? I really liked the scenes with Alma and Brother Rimmer, who is this old guy from the ward who joined the church really in the, in the early 1960s, maybe even in the 50s. I don't think I actually specify. But who joined the church just a little bit before correlation happened and so is still sort of full to the brim of all these ideas about escaping at some point to America. To, to I don't know if it's just me or 
or whether this is true in every ward, but it seems to me that, that in the wards I've lived in, there's always at least one older person who says things in Sunday school lessons and stuff that everybody else thinks, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and Brother Rimmer's the, the sort of character who, who does that, but he's actually, he's actually yeah, I suppose he's a wise fool in a way, because some of the things he says are ridiculous and are very funny, but a lot of the stuff he says is actually quite perceptive and and helpful and and he's there for Alma in a way that that nobody else is. Alma, Alma needs somebody to to keep an eye on him. So I, I enjoyed writing those scenes because they hopefully they're they're quite funny but they're also quite sad. So yeah, so I, I those were probably my favourite ones to write. And redemptive in the end, really, aren't they? Mm-hmm. You know, for Alma. Yeah. <laughs> in yeah. a kind of a comic way. Yeah. Well, I just. You know, all these great stories that are mentioned in the novel that happen in, in America, the Sweetwater Rescue, the, the Pioneer Journeys, the yeah, Miracle of, yeah. of the Gulls, and, you know, all of that stuff. And I just feel like, yeah, let's, let's have a, a miracle story that happens in England. So, yeah, I put the new bites in at the end. <laughs> <laughs> And that was lovely. And I suppose as I read it, the most visceral reaction that I had was really towards Ian and the moment where they're discussing whether or not they get married and he asks her if she'd been sexually promiscuous. I thought that was really powerfully written and I can, it's just so archetypal of a Mormon man. I don't know, maybe I've dated too many Mormon men or been married to many, but, but in terms of the scenes that I I loved reading was when they go and dress Izzy's body, mm. the mother and the daughter. Oh, I exactly like that. It's something that, I mean, I I did that. Well, I say I did that. Actually, I didn't. I was hopeless. But so when my when my daughter died, my husband and I went to do that. I, I'm not really sure why we did. We just felt like it was expected because we were Mormons and and we knew that other people did it. So we decided we would going to do it and the, and the people at the funeral place were said to us oh are you sure are you sure you want to do this this we'll do it for you and we were like no 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 we should we should do it ourselves and I was absolutely hopeless just I, I couldn't do it I just stood there in the end and my husband did the whole thing and I sort of yeah I always remember it because it was quite it wasn't it wasn't like I thought it was going to be and then about because I was on the Relief Society for Presidency about two weeks later one of the sisters died and, and obviously, I was one of the people who was supposed to go and do it. And fortunately, the Relief Society president um, <laughs> didn't ask me. Because <laughs> I, I would have probably gone and done it. I'd have probably made myself do it. Um, but it was something I found really difficult and, yeah, just didn't like at all. So it was, in a way, it was quite nice to write those scenes, you know, with Zippy and Claire doing it. And, mm. um, yeah, and it, it's... It is, I suppose it is quite a nice thing to do, really, to for it not to be strangers who look after your body, but to be people who, who knew you and loved you, um, can sort of, you know, get behind the sentiment behind it, even though the reality, for me at least, was, you know, was not, not very enjoyable at all. Well, um, I, I suppose that's because I dressed several women, and it is, it's an odd, but beautifully odd experience. Yeah. Um, and as I was reading it, I thought... It's one thing to do it for a sister, but another thing to do it for a child uh, of your own. And, I, and you know, it was just grippingly heartbreaking. And I think when you looked at all the context, but I realised that Claire wants to do something for her daughter. And once again, she's drawing on all these church discourses to, to help her. 
to give her some outlet in, in which she can manage her grief. And it falls a little bit short. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I found it as an experience. I found it, yeah, didn't, didn't it fall just a little bit short? It felt, it felt very short. Mm. I wish I hadn't done it actually afterwards. I was like, oh, it wasn't, it wasn't good. But... I think she's already in the in the narrative. She's already struggling by then to sort of keep going, and so yeah, it does it does fall short. And then obviously, um, Zippy realizes that it's fallen short, and that makes it harder for her as well. I think. Right, yeah. right. And so we and so we go back to Claire, and mm. a lot of the story revolves around her, who's inert at this stage. What's going on? Do you you know like how are you thinking? Where is she? What space is she in? I just. I felt like it was, it's almost like a passive resistance, isn't it? And I suppose I, I wanted her to sort of, to take some sort of a stand, but the stand she takes is, it, it's a very passive one. And, you know, she's not really eating, so she's not got very much energy. So she's mostly sleeping. And when she's asleep, she dreams about Izzy. So that's, maybe that's a, a way of escaping. But as I was writing it, you know, it, it sort of occurred to me that, that any of us could at any time just refuse to follow these routines. And and what would happen if we did? You know, what would happen if, if we didn't take the children to school in the morning? How long would it be before somebody would intervene? Or And what if you just refused? What if you're like, well, no, I'm not doing it. You know, and, and so it's of ultimate refusal, I suppose. She just stops. And then, of course, everybody else keeps expecting her to, to start going again and, and she doesn't and she doesn't and she doesn't and it becomes increasingly difficult to manage yeah a bit like I suppose because there's a lot of fairy tales and stories as well in the novel so she sort of becomes a bit like sort of Sleeping Beauty or something she just goes upstairs and that's it and she's there in bed and everyone else has to keep keep going and she's actually making life a lot harder to them yeah I mean it was just a, a very very powerful no to all of it really wasn't it no to yeah. her husband and no to the noise and no to the routines and no to and there's that symbolic pulling that sign off the wall reminding of uh, her role as a mother I mean I wondered how it would end wondering right throughout how is this going to be resolved but you know, without giving anything away, what we see is the power of family in it. And so I just want to sort of say congratulations for the novel. And I hope people will, will gratuitous plugging here. You can purchase this novel from Amazon.com as Kindle or at paperback. And then you have the, oh, sorry, hardback. And it, you have the, the, the release in the United States in August, isn't it? Yeah, 12th, 12th of August, it, it comes out in the US. And I'm actually, I'm going to be at Sunstone. Um, talking about British LDS fiction with another British writer who has written a novel about British Mormons. So I'm really, really looking forward to that. Actually. Oh, you're going, when is that? This weekend, is it? This weekend coming? The, it will be on the 1st of August, the bit that I'm doing. But I think Sunstone starts on the 30th of July and then goes to the 2nd of August, I think. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm glad you're going there. That's an opportunity for people to meet you and talk about what it means. I mean, I think that's really important, isn't it, to understand that this is not just a Mormon novel. It's a British Mormon novel. And that cultural experience, as Mormonism is refract, refracted through our own cultures, becomes just slightly 
off by degrees and takes on a, a different hue and a different ambience. Once again, congratulations. Do you have, in terms of future writing, do you feel compelled in any way to write any more novels in Mormon spaces or do you think that, that might have been it? I think that might be it. I think mm -hmm. I, I'm, I've just started working on my second novel. Um, there's no, there's no Mormons in it. I may have, I may have a couple of Mormon missionaries come to the door at some point, just, just almost as a sort of like little nod to, <laughs> to that. But no, there's, there's no, there's no Mormon characters or, or anything. Um, but it, it's, it's about grief, but it's a different kind of grief because I still, I'm still really interested in that in the. And the way different people respond to bereavement and in the spaces that people leave behind, how people fill those spaces. So it's going to be about that, but this time, you know, Thank it's you so in it. so there'll, be, there'll be other things. Well, we look yeah. forward to your next novel and truly a talented writer. So thank you very, very much. My delightful guest has been Kara Spray, British novelist and author of A Song for Izzy Bradley, a very Mormon story of death, grief, family, and redemption. Kara Spray, thank you. Thank you for listening to A Thoughtful Faith Podcast. Join us in discussing this podcast at athoughtfulfaith.org or on the same-named Facebook group. We thank Chellen Hunt for graciously donating the music for this podcast.